there's this notion within society, in my opinion, and I don't know if it's westernized or not, but that if you're a failure, then that's just it. You just need to quit almost like mm. you need to quit life or that, you know, perfection should be the goal. This is an imperfect world. We know this as black men. <laughs> and, uh, our people know this. But failure is not the end game. Uh, so if you fall down, you get back up and, and, and take your time to feel the emotions that you feel because your feelings are valid. And a lot of times black men aren't allowed to feel. We're not taught to feel things of that nature. We're not allowed to let those emotions, the wide array of emotions that we have, not just anger, uh, to flow. And so uh, one of the toughest lessons that uh, I had to see it through when it came to undergrad and even in my master's program is that failure is not is not the end game. But I'm glad I went through that. And, you know, I think I've done pretty well so far. Welcome to Off the Top, where black excellence dwells. All right, beautiful people. All right, beautiful people. We are back again. And this brother, let's get into his superhero type of movement he's making within our community by connecting food, historical journeys, culture, and his sense of who he is. Yeah, let's strap in for this brother. He's about to take us on a journey. Okay, welcome to another episode of Ebony Tree Council's Off the Top, where we allow children to ex experience everything that there is for opportunities to grow. We believe that images have power and our kids only as broad as the experience. And today we are very, very excited to bring to you Dr. Malcolm Bevel. How are you today, sir? I'm good. How are you? Doing well, doing well. Glad uh, for you to be here. And, you know, in the interest of uh, transparency, you know, we have worked together a little bit on the past and doing some things uh, for the benefit of the neighborhood. And, you know, some of those things may come out in the uh, course of the interview, but we're going to go ahead and get started. Is that okay with you? Perfect. I'm glad okay. to be here. All right. So uh, if you would please uh, kind of introduce yourself and what your role is. Perfect. So good afternoon, everybody, to all the viewers out there. My name is Malcolm Bevel. I am an assistant professor, uh, cancer epidemiologist by training at the Cancer Prevention, Control, and Population Health Program, the Department of Medicine at the Georgia Cancer Center at Augusta University. I know that's a mouthful, but basically to sum it up, cancer epidemiologist, working on health disparities in underserved communities, including the Black community. Uh, my role since I've been here in December is to understand and analyze social determinants of health and how that plays a role in obesity and obesity-related cancers. Uh, some of my training includes, as of recent, uh, two completed postdoctoral assignments, one with Duke University School of Medicine and one with University of, South Carolina, University of North Carolina School of Medicine. And at both of those, post we looked at social determinants of health, such as racial residentization, and that's where I start, and uh, walkability in neighborhoods and, and the environment and how that affects chronic disease health, including cancer, such as ovarian cancer and other types of cancers. Uh, and that's where I got interested in, in continuing to expand some of my dissertation work on deserts and food swamps and how those play a role in basically how people eat 
all per, all persons in the United States and abroad, uh, but specifically the United States, and but specifically the African American community. Uh, I completed my PhD during the pandemic, so that was a very fun, wild time from the University of South Carolina. So PhD in epidemiology. I also have a Master of Science in Public Health from Harry Medical College and HBCU uh, in Nashville, Tennessee. Fantastic, fantastic. Thank you so much. And so, you know, where we intersect is at Ebony Tree Council, we believe that uh, wellness is on the top of the things that should be the driving force by how our communities are viewed in the ecosystem, and in particular, wellness around eating healthy and with this cognition and also uh, mental wellness. So we intersect with uh, Dr. Bevel in that area where food is concerned and, and how it affects the Black community. Of course. And so for today's uh, discussion, we're going to talk about you, sir, and your journey to the where you are today. Right. And that's what we're going to look at because our perspective is to try to give our young audience a little understanding about, you know, there are more opportunities out there than they may be aware of. And one and two, that you know, the journeys that we have growing into adulthood are kind of similar approaches. So we try to bring those things out. So I'll start with asking you, what was your high school experience like when you got to that senior year preparing for transition into you know college what was that like well it was a pretty easy transition uh, i was blessed to have my parents and still blessed to have them today so was raised in a two-parent household education was key scholarship was key within our household but also the allowance of having fun so i was a student athlete four sport athlete i uh, had very great grades graduated top 12 percent of my class uh, that senior year and leading up to the senior year, my parents, we had toured several colleges, including many HBCUs. My parents both went to Kentucky State University, which is in, uh, in Frankfort, Kentucky, if I'm not mistaken. So kind of close to Lexington. And so we, I did, we didn't tour there. I visited Kentucky State uh, before when I was a kid. Uh, we toured Tuskegee. I believe we toured Hampton, a couple of the HBCUs. But then we landed on Prairie A&M University, which is a HBCU about 45 minutes northwest of Houston, Texas. My cousin was attending there at the time. She was in the biology program, but she switched to teaching. But she said the biology program was consistently ranked in the top uh, classes in terms of graduating biology pre-medical students and black uh, biology pre-medical students and having people come to our school to recruit us to go to medical school. So we toured there um, my Thanksgiving of my senior year, and I was sold. Love the campus, love, quite frankly, the blackness that that was there. Uh, I never experienced that because I was I was raised in Iowa, and I always crack this joke because everybody used to crack it on me at Prairie View, but yes, everybody, there are black people in Iowa. I know it. <laughs> but um, it, was, it was a phenomenal experience. I felt home. I felt at home really? attending not one, but two HBCUs, and so... When we toured there, I told dad, this is where I want to be. So I submitted the application. We submitted all the fees and I got accepted. It was the best day of my life uh, at that time. Uh, and so transitioning out from Iowa to Texas, it definitely was a culture shock. My family was there with me every step of the way. And like I said, I felt at home and I, I made a family 
at, uh, at Prairie View. So that was my high school experience and my senior year. So grades were fine. Classes were fine. Took a couple of honors classes and then rounded out track and then um, opted out of baseball that year to attend a summer camp at Prairie View called the Pre-Medical Concepts Institute or PCI, mm-hmm. where you could take a few courses and then earn credit in one of the uh, second semester freshman courses. So it was, a, it was a great time. Wouldn't trade it for the world. And so you mentioned some key things I wanted to pull out of there. And one of the big one was uh, having the right support system that allows you not only uh, hold you accountable for your discipline, but allows you the flexibility to grow. And it sounds like you had both of those components in your support system. Absolutely. What were the, you know, the, the one or two founding principles that, you know, your family stood on when it came time to you know, raising you as a young man during that time. It, oh man, that's a laundry list. You said two. Um, first and foremost, God. Um, mm-hmm. We actually growing up practice Islam, but God is I- Islam. Uh, Allah is just Arabic for God. Mm-hmm. So God is the foundation, and having a spiritual foundation and realizing that a lot of the things that we do. Uh, we are serving a higher calling is uh, one of the foundation. But the other foundation was respect, respect for persons, which ironically is something that we do in the field of public health and epidemiology. Uh, my dad is a lawyer by training. He's been a lawyer shoot, going on about 40 years now. I'm 35. So we're, we're pushing almost 40 years of him being an attorney. He stands up for the little guy. And he always pushed that for my younger brother and I that, you know, bullies just, you know, are probably unheard. They've probably been bullied. There's abuse and all those things, but you stand up to bullies and you stand up for the little guy because there are some people out here who may not uh, feel encouraged to stand up for themselves. So when you see something wrong, you stand up for them. And that was a big part of us growing up. Also, sense of self, uh, that we were in a household where we prided ourselves on Black history, uh, not just during Black History Month, but all year round. I, I tell this story, and it's going to be embarrassing. My dad's going to laugh at it, though. I remember one of the first games that we got uh, in terms, it wasn't a Monopoly game. It was a it was a bingo. No, yeah, it was a bingo game. But it was Black History Month related. So we're, yeah, talking, nice. we're talking Malcolm X, we're talking Marcus Garvey, we're talking about nice. some of the most famous names in black history in this country and in Africa were on that game. And that always stood out to me. So I would say God, a foundation of God or spirituality of respect for persons, respect for self, and then a knowledge of self were, were big in our household growing up. And, and that, and that final one, it's very key because oftentimes, you know, we have, you know, some of the families in our community are disconnected from, you know, who they are and, how we came to be where we are. And that disconnection kind of fuels that, you know, for lack of a better term, um, post-traumatic uh, slave disorders that we see mm-hmm. in our today, right? Mm-hmm. So that's very key knowledge of self in that regard. It's actually funny that you bring that up. Uh, growing up, uh, the N-word, because, you know, in our community, we've kind of taken it and tried to reshape it, and people have their different opinions about it. But in our household growing up, the N-word was a cuss word, so we were not allowed mm-hmm. to say it. So mm-hmm. I, I, that was also impactful. And then going to an HBCU, uh, I read a book um, called The N-Word, The Strange Career of a Troublesome Word, my second year in the English course, and it really shaped how... 
I would use different words and look up different words from the diaspora and then going forward. So, mm-hmm. yeah, knowledge itself is very, very important. And, and I think a lot of us, especially you all in the work that you do with Ebony Tree Council, uh, we're getting back to a lot of roots, pun intended, to <laughs> be able to understand knowledge of self and then right. just the mental and spiritual aspects of ourselves, but our physical bodies as well, because we're here, we're literally here. And we got to take care of that while, while we have our time here. Amen to that. Amen to that. And um, one of the things that um, I'm hearing too, as we move into Malcolm in his college years, is that you had to surround yourself with a different type of support system than you might have been used to. Uh, can you share a little bit about how what that was for you? Well, the way Prairie View was set up, like I said, it was a big family. Uh, everything's bigger in Texas, and that even includes having extended family. Some of the guys that I was around all the time, uh, Lorenzo, Cabo, uh, uh, Gerald, Ashton, Gilbert, we're still friends to this day. I graduated college in 2009, and, and those are my boys. We, we when, when people talk about through thick and thin, we have some crazy undergrad stories uh nothing criminal praise god uh just some really wild stories but just those growing pains that people especially young black men go through in america even bouts of just talking with law enforcement even during a time where uh there wasn't that much of a surge of police brutality or at least it wasn't televised if you will Right. But so we went through those pains. But the pains that we did go through included um, campaigning for President Obama and and getting voting rights at Prairie View. So there was a whole situation where students who were literally residing at Prairie View were not allowed to vote in Waller County, uh, where Prairie View was located. And so we marched and we took from our ancestors and those that came before us, and and because we felt that there was a deliberate movement to keep us from trying to vote the first black president into the United States. He was doing some good things and some he had some criticisms and those are fair, but we still wanted our chance to vote and make that well. And I mean, to be quite frankly, there were people uh, of the non-melanated type that were not happy with us marching for our rights. And so we did receive threats, but so experiencing that in from the early 2000s was kind of a game changer and kind of let me know that the real world still had a lot to work with. But I wouldn't have been able to get through it without my boys. Uh, and I have what I call my play sisters uh, that were there as well that also brought me through. And then my God family. So after practicing Islam, I decided that uh, Christianity was was where, where my heart was calling. So uh, now I'm, I would call myself more about um, relationship with God through Jesus Christ as opposed to religion. And uh, my God family, the Slaughter family, and, and my sister Tiffany, uh, they were also impactful in terms of my spiritual health. Uh, I got to a low point in undergrad where, quite frankly, I was practicing um, borderline alcoholism. Mm-hmm. And through them and through their love and through how they were showing me their love for Christ, I was sober, uh, completely sober for about a year or two. Um, I was also eating healthier, you know, so the fruits and vegetables, that's kind mm-hmm. of where the impact was going uh, better types of eating, exercising, but then again, spiritual health. So like I said, I, I would have never made it through undergrad without uh, that uh, extension of my family. Oh, and, and that's so powerful that you say that and you, because it's demonstrating that you had 
uh, all of the uh, factors that are involved in, in total well-being, you know, from spiritual to relational to social, you know, and community. I mean, all those were wrapped into that experiences there. And, you know, being rounded in those areas of wellness and well-being is what helps us all grow and thrive as individuals. And so that was a beautiful opportunity we had. Mm -hmm. So what was one of the toughest lessons that you had to learn while you were in college? And how did you overcome it? That failure isn't the end game. Uh, there were semesters where I struggled in certain classes. Uh, of course, that was disappointing. But there's this notion within society, in my opinion, and I don't know if it's westernized or not, but that if you're a failure, then that's just it. You just need to quit. Almost like mm -hmm. you need to quit life or that, you know, perfection should be the goal. This is an imperfect world. We know this as black men <laughs> and yes. our people know this but failure is not the end game uh, so if you fall down you get back up and, and and take your time to feel the emotions that you feel because your feelings are valid and a lot of times black men aren't allowed to feel we're not taught to feel things of that nature we're not allowed to let those emotions the wide array of emotions that we have not just anger uh to flow and so uh, one of the toughest lessons that uh, I had to see it through when it came to undergrad and even in my master's program is that failure is not is not the end game. But I'm glad I went through that. And, you know, I think I've done pretty well so far. That's amazing. That's, and I appreciate that. And, and being able to recognize that um, we're, we're greater than our failures is something of a lesson that um, I believe that we have to teach our kids at a much younger age. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, we did go through a period of time where uh, the um, umbrella parents were there to, you know, you know, coddle the kids and everybody got a trophy and everybody did great. Mm -hmm. uh, and But now I was glad to see that, you know, people are going back to, let's teach our children that uh, lessons come in all forms. And, you know, mm -hmm. having a setback is a great teaching tool if you look at it in the right perspective. Exactly. So now that you're in college, and we're kind of trying to want to figure out now what was driving your direction and choices in uh, academic pursuits. So while I was in Iowa, uh, we had a great pediatrician, and just the care that I saw from that pediatrician is why I initially wanted to become a pediatrician. So that's why my major initially was biology pre-med Prairie View. Over the years, uh, I realized though that something felt absent within that pursuit. And then I realized I really liked researching things, just random things, Googling things, reading and all this other stuff. And not to say that medical doctors don't do that, but it was just something that just felt missing from. So I got involved in bedside research and biological research. Uh, during the summer of 2008, yes, because that was before Obama was elected, um, I attended the University of Louisville had a cardiovascular program where they were taking minority students, uh, a select few of minority students. So it was a very competitive program. And myself and about five or six other undergraduate uh, juniors, uh, or no, excuse me, seniors were selected for the program. I looked at mouse models and how that related to, I believe, hypertension uh, and a couple of uh, biological processes with the nose. And that was a great time. And I really enjoyed researching what had been done before. So doing literature reviews on the particular subject and then moving forward with my results and then poster presentations. 
uh, I really excelled at, at the the post presentations and the end of the year post presentation to the point that even a couple of the uh, PhDs at University of Louisville were basically telling me you might want to consider a higher education outside of the MD. So at the MCAT, transparency didn't do too well in the test, or even the second test, or didn't do too well in the first test. And so that literally actually the day after Obama got elected. So when we found out he won the election, you know, the campus is on fire. Like everybody's, you know, just wild, turned yeah. up. Yeah. And I had to go to what was called Amber Crimes. And Amber Crimes was basically an annual biomedical research conference for minority students. It was held in Orlando, Florida that year. I presented my same poster. I got a small recognition for it, but didn't place. But just seeing the number of black and brown faces interested in the field of research blew my mind. And so my senior year, I shifted my focus from pre-med to public health and epidemiology. Mm -hmm. That's where I also saw the booth from Harry Medical College and the recruiter that was there. And, and I wish I could remember her name, but if it wasn't for her, I wouldn't have landed at Harry Medical College in Nashville, Tennessee. Took the GRE, took it one time, and, and I, I passed that pretty well. And with my uh, academic prowess and, and my extracurricular activities, as I was also serving as a tour guide and a student ambassador for Prairie View, uh, Harry Medical College accepted me and on a small scholarship. So uh picked myself up and so I took summer classes 2009 and then leading right into the end of summer school, I picked myself and moved myself to Nashville, Tennessee and uh started my master's program during graduation and for so man, that's that's powerful and amazing. And what a couple of things that I wanted to pull out of that, uh, because I'm seeing some threads and I just want to kind of pull on them a little bit, is that you've been able to connect uh, your passion for research into changing the narrative on some of the medical journals and things out there that have outdated perspectives on care and treatment in the Black community. And that's the kind of the thread that I'm pulling right now. Okay. So are we on the right path or? Well, dispelling the notion that black and brown persons are not interested in medicine or research. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, unfortunately, for multiple factors that we could spend a whole nother podcast on talking about, uh, approximately 10%, if not less, of the professors in the United States are black or identify as African American. Uh, right now, I'm blessed in the Georgia Cancer Center to have two other colleagues that are black themselves. So there are three uh assistant professors and then a postdoc that we have that you met before dr uh, daryl nettles so seeing that and that many black professors in one space is almost unheard of at one institution and so dispelling the notion that we're not interested in medicine and research and science uh, that all we're just interested in and all we're good for is entertainment, uh, whether, whatever, whether it be sports, whether it be rapping or hip hop or music and everything like that. It just opens up people's eyes to the reality that we are so much more. And that also goes back to the history that we were doctors and nurses. We are doctors and nurses and, and, and scientists and geniuses. And we will still continue to be all those things because we are. And. I really think that it is important too, because the research is what informs you know what happens in our communities. Absolutely, you know. And if the research is not 
accurately represented and for whatever motivation it, it may be, then the community suffers, you yeah. know, or they get overlooked for resources, or, you know, but we have conditions that, I mean, prompting some of the studies that you're doing right now, because prior research efforts uh, may not have considered or overlooked, you know, by design, mm -hmm. the needs in, in our communities. Right. Well, at the, at the at, to, to kind of piggyback off of that, at the baseline, you, you have to care about this work. Mm -hmm. You shouldn't capitalize off of our work, off of our backs, literally, figuratively, and scientifically, because there's a history within this country where that's already happened. Uh, Henrietta Lacks, the Tuskegee study, and multiple other studies that are, that go unnamed all the time mm -hmm. was just based off the capitalization of Black bodies, Black and brown bodies, to advance the science. And while biology, while genetics does play a role in different conditions, especially cancer, it's a lot of it's environmental. And so when you want to change the environment, change the live environment, remove food desert designations, food swamp designations, which you know of my work in some of our previous conversations, you have to care about this. Because if you don't care, then what are you really doing? Mm -hmm. Well said, sir. Well said. And so that's what definitely what has attracted us to uh, building a relationship with you all, because, you know, in our in our quest to change the way our kids think, uh, we are starting with, you know, health and, and proper eating. And, and what that means to the community. And, and one of the things that you've pointed out in this area is that there are some significant challenges in providing access to healthy food sources for people in this community. Absolutely. How did you come to uh, focus in on the research that you are doing now? So, during my time at Meharry, I lived in North Nashville, and there are listeners out there who know North Nashville, Jefferson Street, Nashville, Tennessee. They know exactly the kind of area I'm talking about. Uh, if we had to designate it um, in, la in layman's terms or what society would designate it, a lot of those areas would be the hood. Uh, but I would designate it correctly and a little bit more comprehensively as a, an area that lacks a lot of resources that doesn't have to. It actually was a food swamp. And so I noticed it, but I didn't realize the terminology at the time. And so I started hearing whispers about food deserts, started looking that up, and I'll define those in a minute. And then so when I was looking at that, I was trying to figure out what I could do, especially if I decided to go get a PhD after my master's. How can we change this environment to bring healthier options to people that clearly want it? There are corner stores all up and down Jefferson Street, unhealthy food options. Now, they were great food options. I'm not going to hold you. I love chicken. We talked about this. Like, I'm <laughs> I'm a chicken connoisseur. I'm a wing <laughs> And so there were definitely wings. Shout out to Knockout Wings and Nothing But Wings back in Nashville. Yeah. Um, but even then, ironically, they had some healthy options, too. And, and those were consumed by the people there. But when you don't know what you can have, and then when you have the only healthy food store at the Kroger, which is approximately from where I, I lived, which was on Mary's campus by Fisk University. So from that point to the Kroger, I'm guessing a pro it, it was over a mile. You actually were in a food desert, but then like I said, the designation had we known the terminology a little bit sooner back in 2009, 2010, 2011, we were in a food swamp. Mm. And so recognizing literally where I was living at that point in time, drove and where I had lived even after I graduated and when I went to work for Vanderbilt University, 
it was a problem for me. And so we would do volunteer efforts through Meharry. And then when I pledged uh, Omega Sci Fi, we would do volunteer efforts, outreach, backpack giveaways, things of that nature. And but a lot of the things that were asked of us were food items. And we hadn't even thought of those things that, with some of those drives, including Stop the Violence marches that my chapter was doing in Nashville. So uh, to land this part of the plane, uh, during my time at Vanderbilt, was doing research on arthrosclerotic health among kidney transplant patients, started looking at health disparities with access to kidney transplants, whether it be live or cadaver transplants. And then that's why I decided I wanted to go get my PhD. So I retook the GRE to get an even stronger score than what I already had, reached out to the University of South Carolina and several other schools in the University of South Carolina, graciously accepted me into their program, um, including on a scholarship. So where I paid in-state fees and about 80, 85% of my tuition was paid for. Then during my time at USC, again, uh, for the first three years, I lived in what would be designated as a food swamp area. So I'm recognizing that the lived environments, even with students and especially students of color, mm -hmm. was a problem. There's an area around Columbia, South Carolina, uh, in, in uh, off a of broad, uh, broad river road. Excuse me, uh, River Road, basically. The only fresh grocery store was a Food Lion, and even then, the quality of it wasn't as good as compared to a Publix or a Whole Foods and things of that nature. But that's right, all right. that the residents had right there, and the primary, the primary residents within that area were black. And so I'm starting to notice these things. And along with some of the research I was doing that I was participating in at USC, I realized that this isn't just biological. This isn't just genetic. Uh, this isn't just inherited from family. I mean, we have inherited things, including, how, as you described, some of the post-traumatic uh, slave disorder issues that we've had. But the literal built environment, whether intentional or not, was was contributing to all of this. So, yeah, that's... I was literally living in it and, and realizing that this wasn't a good look. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, one of the things that really appreciate about the approach that you're taking, you know, just to, you know, move us along a little bit is that it's not a siloed approach. And Correct. there are several uh, organizations for profit, nonprofit, what have you, that are invested in the area. Uh, some of them are focused on um, a variety of things, I'll just say, but they're all siloed approaches in many regards. Uh, trying to fix a problem like this takes uh, addressing the entire ecosystem. So not just, you know, what's happening in terms of access to food resources, but also educationally, how do you transition a population's mindset wanting to have those things uh, to begin with. Yeah, you have to take a holistic approach with this. You absolutely mm -hmm. have to. It, you will not be able to mitigate health disparities in underserved communities as strongly as you want to if you do not take a holistic approach and a non-silo approach. Absolutely. And so, uh, with some of the research you're doing, looks like investing in uh, community gardens might be part of the solution you're exploring. And that's another area where we kind of intersect that. And what's the vision that, that you see in that area? So to, before I talk about community gardens, I want to define some things for your viewers. So the reason why I'm thinking of gardening and community garden is kind of getting back to, again, our roots, knowledge of self. We were 
we were cultivators in Africa. Uh, we brought those traditions and, and that knowledge over when we were enslaved and we were unjustly and wrongfully enslaved. And I think at a point in time, sometime in society, we became a microwavable society. So we got away from that. And that all, along with the environment and some of the intentional things with the environments, such as redlining, such as gentrification, that contributed to the statuses of food deserts and food swamps, especially in lower socioeconomic status areas, which affects everybody, not just Black people, but it does mm -hmm. primarily affect Black people, Black and brown persons. So the definition of a food desert, according to the USDA, is a geographical area where you live more than one mile away from a grocery store in an urban designated area or more than 10 miles away from a fresh food grocery store in a rural area. So that's a food desert. Food swamps are a more novel approach and, and possibly a better and more significant predictor of the actual food environments that a lot of people experience. The only difference between a food desert and a food swamp is that the swamp has access to food, but it's unhealthy pro-inflammatory foods. Okay. So you have the fast food restaurants. I know a lot of people, maybe a lot of your viewers have some favorite fast food restaurants, things of that nature. And despite some of the healthy uh, options that they're trying to provide these days, they're still primarily unhealthy food options. So the McDonald's, the Burger King, the Wendy's, the Bojangles, the Popeye's, you name it. The Chinese stores, things of that nature, your corner stores, like I mentioned, Jefferson Street had definitely had a corner store right around the corner from us where you get the hot Cheetos and the candy and the hot pickles and the fried chicken in there. Uh, you're not really baked <laughs> chicken, pork, yeah. uh, um, other things, and basically the cooking techniques that go along with it. So kind of, kind uh -huh. of put you into the educational aspect. If people don't know that they have fresh produce access and if they don't know how to cook the fresh produce along with these environmental barriers, then it doesn't help. And it just it compounds upon the issues that we see within our community. Uh, some of my recent, so my dissertation research was, uh, it, it was a multifaceted approach, but the one that I would like to highlight was a mixed methods analysis that I did where I looked at the association between food deserts, food swamps, and high, inflam high, inflam high inflammation uh, within the blood among African-American women. And so that was the quantitative piece. And then the qualitative piece, which is still a very important piece in research, and that's another uh, misconception that people have, but the qualitative piece, the words from some of our participants we're looking at the feasibility and acceptability of gardening, whether it be personal community and the African-American community. Uh, to land that part of the plane, we found a marginally significant, but not well, marginally high, but non-significant association between residing in a food desert or food swamp and having high CRP or IL-6 levels. Those are uh, biomarkers within the blood that typically have been indicators of infectious disease, but have been more recently being used to measure if chronic disease and inflammation is going on within a person's body. And the more chronic it is, the more your cells are altered, the more your cells are altered that may produce cancer. Hmm. And so we found about a 12% increased risk population, but it was non-significant, but so that's okay. But what was significant was the qualitative piece of that information and what I brought over to my postdocs and what I've brought here to the Georgia Cancer Center. Every single participant that we interviewed during our structured interviews and the phone calls that we did found that they indicated self-efficacy or the ability and the desire to garden if they had the resources to do so, including community gardening. Hmm. So when I got those results in 2020 or based 2019, 2020, 
I realized that if we got back to our roots of gardening in some way, shape or form, but making sure it's enough pork produce and more than enough produce for everybody to eat, then everybody's going to be healthy. And so you can start to see people living longer, happier lives. So my dream is to build greenhouse-based community gardens throughout uh, lower socioeconomic status neighborhoods in the state of Georgia and the Southeast of the United States. Man, you have said uh, quite a bit and it's quite eloquent. There's a few areas that I wanted to step back into because I haven't okay. landed my plane yet. And okay, so yeah. what I'm hearing, I'm just gonna uh, kind of recap and ask a question is that uh, you have uh, identified or determined uh, through research that uh, access to healthy food resources is related to, or the lack thereof, can be related to uh, chronic health conditions that we see typical in many Black communities. Absolutely. So inflammation, inflammatory biomarkers such as CRP, IL-6, or TNF-alpha, they are indicators that can lead to hypertension, diabetes, which we have higher prevalence rates of, and then potentially cancer, including breast and obesity-related cancers. There are 13 different types of obesity-related cancers that account for 40% of all cancers in the United States. And so further into that, we actually have some preliminary results. I believe I told you all that I was conducting some analyses about this on a national scale. So we just finished, my colleagues and I at the Georgia Cancer Center, we've done a preliminary analysis where we merged two sets of data, one from the Food Environment Atlas from the USDA and one from the CDC looking at cancer mortality data. And long story short, we basically found that there is a new epidemic of food swamps in this country that we need to combat. Specifically, we found that there was a 77% increased odds of a person dying from any one of the 13 obesity-related cancer types if you reside in a food swamp area or a poor food swamp score area county within the United States in the last 10 years. There's over 3,143 counties in the United States. Our analysis used about 3,041. We found almost 80% increased chance of somebody dying from obesity-related cancers if you live in a poor food environment area. And, and these things are preventable or addressable uh, as yeah. long as you have resources to, to turn the tide. You know, and, and what's really chilling to me is that uh, if we're looking at the trends and direction that access to food sources are going right now, the access is trending toward being more restricted than being uh, open. And so having some way to counteract uh, decline in, you know, access to food in a food swamp is going to be really critical because mm -hmm. you won't be able to rely on, you know, large chains to provide that type of distribution. You know, we've seen hits on our supply chain already to kind of indicate that, you know, being able to regionalize or localize your food sources is going to be the returning trend from where we used to be, you know, back in times when we were here ourselves. Right. Wow, that's significant. 
Yeah. And then, again, this isn't just in the state of Georgia. This isn't just Augusta, mm -hmm. Georgia, or the greater or the CSRA, Central uh, Savannah River area of Georgia. This is the entire United States in the last 10 years. Mm -hmm. This is the new epidemic. And so uh, we've submitted this information to the American Public Health Association conference. Hopefully they will allow me to present the total picture and the total story about what we found. We're going to keep teasing out this information because there are publicly available data sources that we can determine how severe this is, especially by cancer type. As I said, there's 13 different types. Uh, Georgia is a hot spot for, uh, and there are different counties within Georgia, including Richland County, for um, breast cancer and colorectal cancer. One of our colleagues, Dr. Justin Moore, uh, he's done phenomenal work regarding that. And you, you start to see correlations with this. So mm -hmm. you see how the prevalence of obesity and extreme obesity is in America, how it's basically worse east of the Mississippi, south of Mason-Dixon, and the correlation between that and the breast cancer, colorectal cancer hotspots, early onset colorectal, colorectal cancer at that. But then you also see correlations with the prevalence of food deserts and food swamps in those same exact yes. areas. Not yes. to mention the fact that community gardens, based on the research that I did back at USC, mainly the, the main community gardens or more community gardens seem to exist out on the West Coast or the Patriot Northeast, such as New York, where you see a lot of research originate uh, and a lot of studies push for um, community gardening efforts and gardening efforts amongst elementary school kids. And that's a great effort. And I know that's something that you all focus on. Uh, my ideology is that uh, it's a better trickle down effect where if the parents know better then the kids will naturally. Yes. And so if parents aren't living longer and healthier lives because they're the ones making the decisions in terms of what they're eating. And especially because of socioeconomic barriers of do I pay for my meds? Or do I pay for this food? Can I mm -hmm. afford this type of food or should I just go for cheaper and just run to McDonald's and go to the dollar menu? Can I really afford this head of lettuce or this mm -hmm. bag of spinach or should I just go get some canned veggie? Like all these things are yes. intertwined in terms of the problems that we see within this community and including the barriers of food deserts and food swamps in this country, Absolutely. not just the South, but in this entire country. Absolutely. And that's why I appreciate the approach that you guys are looking at, which is holistic. And so I'm, I, I want to step away from this. Uh, I could talk about this with you all day because there are so many things that you know, you know we uh, can cover in this regard. Uh, before I step away, I do want to ask this question because there are some folks that say that, you know, community gardens are not sustainable because they're subject to the weather. Uh, what do you say uh, to that type of impact? Uh, well, considering that the South has longer growing seasons compared to other regions, uh, I believe that you should at the very least give it a chance. But then again, some of my visions include using the wind tunnels and the tents that you can use to help regulate the weather better and prevent adverse weather from occurring. But I mean, there are federal dollars out there that, that can fund community, uh, excuse me, uh, greenhouse based community gardens. Everybody's got to eat year round anyway. Yeah. So why yeah. let the weather, I mean, we, we cannot control the weather. We do not, or at least I don't believe we can control the weather. There are other things that we do contribute in terms of, you know, the greenhouse effects, destroying the ozone, things of that nature. And that all plays a role, absolutely. But what we, we can do literally here on the ground uh, to mitigate any issues with the weather is just cover everything 
greenhouses. You really don't have that many leaks in, in state-of-the-art greenhouses. Temperature controlled, so then you can have a variety of food choices and not just vegetables, but fruits as well. So then you can have one area where you need a little bit more humidity versus another area. All temperature control. There are dollars out there that you can do this. So while I get those criticisms and those concerns, and those have been expressed in other focus groups, as you're aware of, um, there are solutions around this. And it's something that we shouldn't give up on, especially for uh, underserved communities. Thank you for that. And, and what would you suggest to our, any of our folks in our listening audience if they're interested in how to engage and how to support any of these efforts? So there are several ways. Uh, one, I will first off give you all a shout out uh, in contacting you all at Ebony Tree Council. You all are showing you all are showing us the way. You all are leading the way and, and one of the leaders in healthy eating and how that affects mind, body, and spirit. So contacting you all in terms of your resources, your educational pieces, the cookbook uh, that Mrs. Griffin has put together, which we, we're starting to crack open ourselves. So <laughs> it's great. Uh, my son, he's 18 months. And he's excited about it. And again, it starts with that type of education and re-educating. He does eat a little bit of meat, but we keep him from eating a lot of meat and we really put emphasis on whole foods, whole grains. There are times he'll just want rice and beans and we're absolutely fine with that. There are other sources of protein and things of that nature. So it is about the educational piece. But And reaching out to you all is a big part of that. People can contact me at the Georgia Cancer Center. I'll make sure that they have that information. You can find us on our uh, on the website at the Georgia Cancer Center and the Cancer Prevention Control and Population Health Program. So you can find my contact information there. There are several of us who are working uh, towards building partnerships with the community and getting grant dollars out there for it. Uh, nonprofit organization uh, alongside you all uh, is Paceline. Paceline was a organization founded out of the concept uh, similar to Peloton, but also how to advance efforts in terms of emphasizing physical activity and diet and how that plays a role in the body to help prevent cancer. So they were the ones that recently had awarded six of us, including myself, uh, grant monies to continue combating cancer research. And they were really interested in us looking at food deserts, food swamps, and multiple cancer outcomes, and then also trying to see if we can build a few gardens in Augusta through um, the, the the reconstruction and construction from some of these dilapidated lots, and then seeing if we could build some garden beds up to show change amongst the community and to show that we can actually grow what we say we can grow. And so Paceline was very pivotal with that. So they're another organization I'll give a shout out to uh, in terms of fundraising efforts. Last year, they raised over $330,000 towards funding cancer research to help not only uh, understand cancer better and help with treatments, but also to prevent it, such as what my work is, is entailing. And actually, we just got the blurb right before I got on the call, which is another one of the <laughs> reasons why I was uh, a little bit tardy, so my apologies to the audience. But we just had received a very generous donation from, I believe, an anonymous donor. And so they were able to fund three more projects combating cancer research, combating cancer, Wonderful. including health disparities, uh, cancer research, including one with one of my uh, colleagues, uh, Meng. Menghan Sai uh, or Mina Sai. So she, two of our people within our team, uh, myself and Dr. Sai, have been funded by Paceline to continue our cancer research. So um, I will make sure that all those are put into our show notes as well. Definitely. Yeah. So uh, there's so many resources out there that you can utilize. Uh, 
especially here in the Augusta, Georgia area. So utilize the resource, Augusta locally grown, uh, the hub, because they're building things up with that. And I believe our, some of, some members of our team at the Georgia Cancer Center are trying to partner with the hub, uh, including cooking classes, state-of-the-art cooking, state-of-the-art kitchens and cooking classes. So even, you know, I know people living at home, you may not have state-of-the-art kitchens, but if we can show you those techniques, sauteing and, and, and getting away frying because even with air fryers there may be some uh, concerns with that so more of the sauteing and more of the searing of the pan just a little bit and, and yeah. more of, um steaming vegetables and things of that nature but mm -hmm. also being able to retain the nutrients fruit smoothies the sky's the limit with this and so Beautiful. i encourage Beautiful. people to reach out to you all industry council myself uh, people in CPCPH and uh, Paceline, and then just mm -hmm. looking up into other nonprofit organizations. Oh, and the local farmers market uh, here in Augusta, Georgia. I've heard that they're actually in the process that they haven't already completed it of allowing a WIC and SNAP to be uh, allowed to be used and, and utilized. And then they're also bringing the farmers market back, uh, a small section of it back to the Georgia Cancer Center uh, via Dr. Cortez, if I'm not mistaken. So mm -hmm. there's a movement. There is definitely, there's an, a, a a, a significant movement to allowing people to live a healthier lifestyle in Augusta and abroad. Thank you so much for that. So as, as we're coming to a close here, we, we kind of like to ask our guests a question about you know, either your 15-year-old self or your 22-year-old self. Pick one of those personas and, and what advice would you give them? So either or, because I'd probably pretty much give it both. Because <laughs> ironic, because you know, fifteen, because I'm thirty-five. I ain't that old, but you know, it feels like some days my joints will tell me that I'm old. And my son, who is thirty-five pounds, will remind me, "Hey, you're kind of older." No, but if I had to give advice to my fifteen and or twenty-one, twenty-two-year-old self, I would just say, uh, uh, in the words of Valvano, uh, who pass away from cancer and they do the Jimmy Fee Foundation. So Jimmy Barbano, mm -hmm. don't give up. Don't ever give up. This fight is worth it. The people are worth it. And, and this fight against cancer, obesity-related cancers, and combating the systems that uh, assist in these disparities will always be worth it. So keep, keep going. Keep trucking along. See it through. Don't give up. Don't ever give up. Wonderful. Love it. And the last question of the day is, um, just picture in your mind for a moment uh, where you will be five years from now, where you desire to be five years from now, and tell us, what do you have to let go of today? That's a great question. So if, if I saw myself where I would be five years from now, what would I have to let go to get there? You know, I don't know if I would have to let anything go. I think the path that I'm walking right now is ordained. I believe that the path that I'm walking on is protected. And I believe so as long as I don't get in my own way and make sure to partner with the right people and the right spirits, I think I'm going to be just fine in five years. So I don't, I don't know if I would let anything go. I really don't think I would. I have a beautiful family, a beautiful Black family great colleagues, a diverse team at CPCPH. This is, I, I believe this is truly ordained in terms of where I need to be right now and then possibly within the next five years. So I'm going to keep on fighting. I love it. And, and ladies and gentlemen, you have just had the esteemed pleasure 
uh, taking a few moments with Dr. Malcolm Bevel, research extraordinaire, community change agent, and future leader for our community. Thank you so much, sir, for your time today. I really do appreciate it. No problem. I've, I've been waiting to do this podcast. I'm very <laughs> excited. So I hope that uh, people enjoyed it. And we, we appreciate you all for the work that you do for the community. Bless you, sir. Bless you, sir. Okay. Yeah. Listen, beautiful people, listen. This this brother, as I call him, a new version of a superhero drops some information. You know, there are times we have guests and they really move us. This one spoke directly to our community and what we need to be responsible for. Absolutely, absolutely. And it was such a pleasure just having that moment to uh, talk with Dr. Bevel because not only did we have a good exchange, but I believe the conversation is going to be something that elevates the community as well. Yes, yes. We are for elevation in a vertical sense, too. So what were the highlights for you? First, we got to thank the brother again. Let's just go and thank him <laughs> one more time. Yes, indeed. Thank you. Yes, indeed. Dr. Bevel. Uh-huh. Okay. Now, highlight for me. I mean, when he said this, when he made this statement that spiritual growth, respect for others, sense of self, and knowledge of self were what were present in his home. Yeah. That to me was just powerful. That is. Um, there is no greater joy to me to when a child knows those foundational things when they step out into this world. It makes a difference. Absolutely. And I'm going to take right from that because that type of foundation at home led to my favorite moment when he said, failure is not the end game. Woo, man. Brother said, failure is not the end game. Let me say, yeah, that moved me too. (laughs) That moved me too. Oh, and and let me just say, when he tapped into, I know this might be something some folks ain't going to be ready for, but when he said the N word was a curse word in their home, we could really... Relate to that because, yes, our children are brought up in that sense. Mm-hmm. N-word is curse word. That's right. Okay. So let's shout out to his parents. Absolutely. Absolutely. And just one final thing I wanted to talk about was that network. Uh, being able to have that solid home foundation of made it easy for him, I'm going to say, to connect with networks of culture that help him thrive at every step of the way. And that's important for all our children. Yes. And I'm I'm throw this out there. He has so much. This is why we're going back and forth about his greatness. Yeah. Um, the idea that we have someone fighting cancer in our community. That's right. Through food quality mm-hmm. is just let me let me help you wrap your brain around that. We have someone on the inside fighting cancer in our community as it relates to food that's powerful that's huge that is huge let that sink in for a moment please yes 
As we talk about the numbers. Let's talk about the numbers, baby. Let's talk about the numbers. All right. Dr. Bevels, he is a chronic disease medical researcher. And we encompass everything that he does. But we know he do so much yeah. more. Uh, the average salary in this profession is 62417 which I find to be relatively low mm-hmm. considering what they do. We, in this space only, are at 5.5%. Uh-huh. That's wow. not good. Because wow. the chronic diseases <laughs> tend to impact our communities so much more than others. So let's go and get some of that. That number because um, we really need to be represented in that. And you think about all the time that it has transpired where we have been misrepresented, being able to have influence on understanding the internals of our human body and making sure that our lives are aligned with that is critical. It's critical to our generations today as well as our generations tomorrow. So... Yes. We are going to close on that. But as always, we like to, again, thank Dr. Bevel. Yes. And thank you all for listening and connecting and continue to stay on this journey with us as we continue to go deep, deep for the culture. Deep for the culture. Bye. You have been listening to Off the Top, where Black excellence dwells. If you enjoyed this episode, please comment below, share with your friends and family, and come back for the next episode, where we will continuously provide usable, tangible life-shifting information.